Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. On an overcast afternoon in early 2000, electrician Paul Wallace stood before a red brick building, toolkit in hand. He'd lived in Warrenton, Virginia for years and had rewired every building on 5th and Main. But he'd never seen the interior of this location. An elderly gentleman welcomed Wallace into the building and pointed him in the direction of the circuit breaker. Then Wallace descended alone down a staircase and into a musty old basement. He started repairing the overloaded circuits and then something caught his eye. It was a small door hidden just inches from the breaker box. Wallace wasn't the kind of man to go poking around on the job, but something about this tiny entryway called to him. He couldn't help but take a peek inside. Behind the door, he found a secret storage room. Inside lay a black wooden box that resembled a coffin. Wallace yanked the heavy chest out of the room, blew the dust from the lid, and opened it. Inside was a white cloak and a collection of candles, but it wasn't these items that caught Wallace's eye. Rather, it was the macabre things that lay beneath them, namely a set of leathery, decomposed ribs and a human skull. Wallace was stunned. He told his friends about the corpse, and soon the story spread like wildfire through Warrington. Though its residents didn't know it, their small town wasn't unique. In fact, human remains had been turning up in lodges all over the country, each of them belonging to the Order of the Oddfellows. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second episode on the Oddfellows. After its founding in the 18th century, the group offered welfare, health insurance, and even nursing homes to the offbeat professionals that made up its membership. Last week, we discussed the origins of the order. We also detailed the group's initiation ceremony, their secret signs, and their sacred symbols. This week, we'll cover some of the weirder conspiracies surrounding the order. We'll explore if members were really required to ride goats in a humiliating ceremony. We'll also investigate claims that the Brotherhood was involved in the notorious Australian cold case, the Somerton Man. And finally, we'll examine why human remains started turning up in so many former Oddfellow Lodges. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In 2004, a cheerleading squad from Houston, Missouri needed a location to practice their routines. Head coaches Sherry Wade and Tabby Ireland found the perfect spot. It was a centuries-old red-brick building that was available for rent downtown. The faded black sign over the door read I-O-O-F. Below the strange acronym sat three interlocking rings. The squad didn't know it, but these three rings represented the society that once occupied the space, the independent order of the Odd Fellows. Though once bustling with life, the lodge now sat empty and abandoned which wasn't uncommon. When membership declined after the Great Depression, many lodges were forced to close their doors for good. This left new, unexpecting inhabitants to uncover the secrets that society members had left behind. This was exactly the case for cheerleading coaches Ireland and Wade. Shortly after moving into their new practice space, they uncovered a gold mine of old relics left behind by the society. They marveled at strange items like decorative robes and books full of Oddfellows' rituals. There was even an old security system with buzzers and peepholes drilled into the doors. But one of the most exciting discoveries they made was the Society's Charter. Upon scrutinizing the list, Ireland was stunned to discover her grandfather's name on the ledger. She had no idea he was a former member. As it turns out, her grandfather was in good company. In a later interview, Ireland said, We knew all these people. They were the most prominent people in Texas County. In that article, Ireland and Wade also mentioned another terribly unsettling find. Buried in the corner of an old storage room, underneath those odd fellows' cloaks and relics, the women discovered three black coffins. Inside the first casket, they found a ceramic torso. It had been hand-painted to look like a human body. The second box was exactly the same, but the third coffin contained something far more grisly. Instead of inert ceramic molds, it held real skeletal remains. The coaches did their best to keep their gruesome find from the young cheerleaders on their team. But somehow, the word got out. And instead of being horrified, the 12-year-olds were excited. They begged to see the skeleton. For them, it was a thrill just to have a bit of danger, mystery, and darkness in their lives. But not everyone shared their delight, especially when these John Doe Oddfellows started turning up in lodges all over the country. 
In 2011, 16-year-old Jenny Minton was helping clean out an Oddfellows Lodge in Oregon. There, she came across a child-sized coffin in a cabinet. Inside, Minton found a collection of human bones and teeth. A few states over in Pennsylvania, construction workers were renovating an old lodge. As they tore out the plaster walls, human skeletons fell out of a hidden crawl space. In Oklahoma, the same scenario played out. A family who had just purchased a home found a coffin containing a human skeleton inside their barn. When questioned, the house's former owner admitted that he'd found the coffin in an abandoned Oddfellows Lodge, brought it home, and promptly forgot about it. His explanation seemed plausible. Otherwise, why would he have left the coffin? Meanwhile, more and more of these skeletons rose to the surface across America, alarming the public at large. And soon, people began demanding answers. The public wanted to know who these skeletons belonged to and if the Oddfellows had had anything to do with their deaths. So, one by one, they began contacting the police. First up were the bones that Paul Wallace, the electrician, discovered behind the hidden door. The authorities in Virginia surmised that these remains had belonged to a five-foot-one Caucasian woman. But beyond that, information was scarce. According to the Washington Post, examiners couldn't even tell if the woman had died 10 or 150 years ago. As for the skull that 16-year-old Minton found in Oregon, the police noted that it had been surgically sawed into two even parts. Since this technique was often performed in autopsies, the authorities concluded that the body had already been dead and likely donated to science before it fell into the possession of the Oddfellows. But the skeleton from Missouri proved to be the most informative piece of evidence yet. Texas County Coroner Tom Whitaker found that the lower jaw and the top of the skull had been bound with black twine, while the rest of the bones were left in disarray. And yet, despite the clearly tampered with human remains, Whitaker couldn't say definitively if foul play was involved. So he enlisted the help of forensic anthropologist and professor Suzanne Walker. Suzanne determined that the remains may have belonged to a black male with mixed Asian and African ancestry. She also found ridges and holes on the bones, which suggested this person may have had severe arthritis or osteoporosis. The skeleton's teeth were also worn down. This led her to conclude that this John Doe Oddfellow was a senior citizen. Suzanne also uncovered rough spots on the upper arm bones, which would have supported large muscles. This suggested that the deceased lived a physically demanding life, leading Suzanne to suspect he may have been a former slave. Despite her many findings, however, Suzanne never discovered any evidence of foul play. In other words, there were no signs of trauma to any of the bones. However, because of dirt still found in some of the bones, Suzanne concluded that the body had once been buried and later dug up. This helped Coroner Whitaker rule out the idea that John Doe's death was the result of a crime. Instead, he believed that this skeleton, and likely most of the Oddfellows' corpses, had been acquired by other means. This discovery caused the police to change the tenor of their investigation. They started asking Oddfellow members what the purpose of these skeletons was. It was definitely a tamer line of questioning than an accusation of murder, but members were still reluctant to offer up their secrets to law enforcement. In the case of the Warrenton, Virginia bones, 
Lieutenant Carrie White of the Virginia PD got a few former Oddfellows to talk to him after much coercing. Yet strangely, when White was interviewed by the media, the lieutenant said he'd promised to keep the order's information secret. However, it's possible that his very discretion might help us suss out the purpose of the Oddfellows' skeletons. Last week, we discussed the elaborate ritual in the Oddfellows' initiation ceremony that involves presenting a new initiate with a human skull. Given that White declined to pursue prosecution after his conversation with order members, it's possible he found out that the skeletons were solely used for such rites. In other words, they were nothing more than symbolism. As for where the Oddfellows got their skeletons, Randall Kramer, a spokesman for the Smithsonian Institute, provided an explanation. He said that oftentimes, the Oddfellows would buy their skeletons from scientific supply companies, which got their remains from donations and from the poor. A 2001 Washington Post article suggested that the Oddfellows may have purchased some of their ceremonial skeletons. As proof, the article offered up a description of a catalog from the early 20th century that advertised a genuine, full-sized, wired and deodorized human skeleton. The Oddfellows might not have been the only order that was purchasing supplies from a third party either. At the turn of the century, the golden age of fraternalism sparked an influx of people joining and creating secret societies. Since these would-buy society members were typically middle-to-upper-class men with disposable incomes, companies like the DeMolin brothers saw an opportunity to capitalize. They sold supplies like fraternal robes, medallions, and, like the catalog said, genuine, deodorized human skeletons. The skeletons in particular went for about $200 a piece. That means that today, a genuine DeMolin corpse would run you a few thousand dollars. No wonder the Oddfellows held on to them. Since their discovery, some of the John Doe Oddfellow skeletons have gone on to live other lives. One recovered skull was placed in the serial killer exhibit of a New Orleans art gallery. Others have become conversation pieces in local bars and taverns. One even made its way into the hands of a costume shop owner named Larry Winterseller. He purchased the skeleton from a folded Oddfellows chapter, then rented it out for movie shoots. For this reason, the skeleton was fortunate enough to garner a bit role in the classic 1978 horror film, Dawn of the Dead. So while the Oddfellows did appear to have skeletons in their closet, it seems their origins were harmless, even comical in nature. However, collecting human remains wasn't the only strange ritual the society engaged in. On the contrary, order members also cultivated an interest in sacrificial goats. Needless to say, they took this secret society mainstay to a whole new level of odd. Coming up, the humiliating custom of riding the goat is added to the Oddfellows repertoire. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers 
dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the wake of the Great Depression, many Oddfellows lodges were forced to close their doors for good. The society, traditionally known for carefully guarding their secrets, carelessly left relics behind. Many of these came in the form of human remains. But as it turns out, there are some more humbling mysteries the Order might have wanted to take to the grave. The concept of blood oaths, secret handshakes, and cloaked figures have become synonymous with the general idea of a secret society, but there's one particular element that appears to be a universal symbol shared by a variety of orders, the goat. Interpretations behind the goat's significance vary. The Rosicrucians felt the animal represented the elements of Earth and the planet Saturn. For the Freemasons, it was believed to symbolize male fertility and sexuality. The Knights Templar was said to have worshipped the deity Baphomet, a half-goat, half-human hybrid, who signified the balance of good and evil. During the Golden Age of Fraternity, the emblematic goat gained even more notoriety. It was referred to in songs, poems, and cartoons drafted by these fraternal societies. The image was even printed on trinkets and keepsakes by a variety of groups. But the independent order of the Oddfellows took the fraternal mascot one step further. In December of 1860, the Oddfellows started a new branch in Denver, Colorado. According to a townsman named George Clark, the Oddfellows had a hard time spreading the word about their new outpost, so the members recruited local businessmen to attend a meeting at J.B. Doyle, a small local convenience store. One of those hopeful initiates was a man named Wolf Londoner. Londoner had heard rumors about other Oddfellows lodges outside the city. He was told that the ceremonies were rather profane, barbaric even. This forewarning had only made Londoner more eager and excited when he set out for J.B. Doyle. It just so happened that next to the convenience store was a dairy farm with a large, pungent goat. The animal often wandered over to the store and lounged on the stairs. So when Londoner ascended the steps to J.B. Doyle on his first day, he startled the goat from its slumber. The horned mammal took off down the stairs, bringing Londoner along with him. According to the 1884 book, Tales of the Colorado Pioneers, from atop the goat, Londoner cried out, By chaos, this is a gallant sport, a league at every breath. On seeing the amazing sight of a gentleman on a goat, 
a group of young boys gleefully chased Londoner through the town. In their excitement, the whole crew, Londoner, the boys, the goat, all went careening through the window of a local drugstore. When the dismayed clerk questioned Londoner about his destructive entrance, he replied, It's in honor of my being made an odd fellow. It's unclear if Londoner had actually been set up by order members to participate in a ritual dubbed riding the goat, or if it was sheer accident that he happened to find himself on the back of the buck. The most likely scenario is that this story and other goat stories that followed were fabricated wholesale by a growing movement that feared the golden age of fraternalism. During the early half of the 19th century, organizations like the Freemasons and the Odd Fellows were accused of propagating unchristian values. Evangelists thought the order's ceremonies were sinful and elitist. As a result, they spread anti-Odd Fellow pamphlets condemning the order and those who participated in it. It was in these publications that the first official mentions of riding the goat made their appearance, and disgruntled former members also contributed to the public pillaging. In 1845, one such former member published a document called Odd Fellowship Exposed. In it, the member described the details of a crude initiation ceremony. He claimed that at the climax of the event, an order member suddenly cried out, prepare the goat, and then a large black and white goat was led forward. At that point, the writer claimed he was forcefully placed on the goat's back by the other members. He was then told to grab the horns just as the men released their grip. This caused him to go bucking and rearing around the room. Within seconds, the anonymous writer said he was launched from the goat and went crashing to the floor to the great amusement of his laughing society brothers. This lurid account gained credibility when another alleged ex-odd fellow named James Madison told a similar story. However, Madison claimed his experience with riding the goat was a bit more nuanced. Unlike the anonymous account, Madison claimed he was forcibly placed on the back of a large man who was play-acting as a goat. Upon being seated, Madison was then carted about the lodge in a procession. These stories of brothers riding goats and men may very well have been true, but it's also possible that they were senseless accusations leveled against the Odd Fellows by prospective members. They didn't make the cut and had a score to settle. But while these rumors might have begun as fictitious propaganda, this wouldn't remain the case for long. By the beginning of the 20th century, the continued rise of capitalism and industrialization was changing gender roles. In greater numbers than ever before, women were entering the workforce, bringing home wages, and thus threatening their husband's authority as breadwinner and head of household. In addition, as women fought for more freedoms, family size was shrinking. All these progressive changes likely caused some men to feel emasculated. So men started seeking new thrills that were formerly frowned upon. Some began drinking more and delaying marriage so that they could remain eligible bachelors and prolong their hell-raising years. According to William Moore, a historian and professor of American culture at Boston University, the Oddfellows Lodge became a sanctuary for juvenile men. Since they felt impotent at home, humiliating new members became an attractive selling point. 
In the early 20th century, riding the goat went from being anti-fraternal propaganda to being adapted by the order as a real fixture of their initiation ceremonies. Fortunately, their interpretation of the ritual didn't include an actual goat. Instead, they utilized something a little more mechanical. In the 1900s, a company called Lewis E. Stiltson Brothers was known for specializing in theatrical props. Wanting to meet growing demands of secret societies, they and other theatrical companies pivoted away from creating items for public plays and began mass-producing mechanical goats for private use. Society members loved these mechanized contraptions. They didn't deal with a real goat's messy bodily emissions, but they did make convincing goat noises. In other words, they were the best of both worlds. Adding to their charms, the mechanical goats came with some humorous instructions. The manual read, To seat rider, have attendants pull candidates' legs apart, thrust animals' head between them, and slowly bear down on the handle. Then you sent him teetering, galloping, flying, trotting, and bucking around the room, until between tears and laughter, you are forced to desist. In this way, what started out as an odd rumor eventually became appropriated by the fraternal order. And really, what was the harm? At worst, riding the goat was a silly piece of idiocy dreamt up by bored men. So evangelists who attempted to sink the order with tales of this harmless event were wasting their time. In hindsight, critics of the group should have turned their attention elsewhere. Because as it turns out, the Oddfellows had much darker secrets they needed to protect. More specifically, they might have been involved in one of Australia's most notorious unsolved cases, the death of the Somerton Man. Coming up, a dead body on the beach in Australia points to the Oddfellows. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. Now back to the story. In the mid to late 1800s, rumors circulated that the Odd Fellows humiliated their initiates by forcing them to ride a goat. The first stories were nothing more than a smear campaign orchestrated by anti fraternalists. But the Odd Fellows eventually embraced the rumor, turning it into a new tradition. 
However, the society wasn't always engaged in silly juvenile pranks. One international branch in particular may have been busy covering up a murder. In the 19th century, the Independent Order of the Odd Fellows found their way to South Australia, opening their first lodge in downtown Adelaide. This also happens to be the location of one of the most notorious cold cases in history, the mysterious death of the Somerton Man. On December 1, 1948, a 16-year-old jockey and his friend were riding down Somerton Beach when they spotted a man propped up against a rock. The man looked like he was around 40. He wore a brown suit with an unlit, smoked cigarette resting on his collar. He sat cross-legged, his face staring up into the sky. It only took a glance for the teenager and his coach to realize that the man was dead. When the authorities arrived, they ruled out the possibility that the victim had washed ashore. He showed no signs of water retention or decay. In fact, he appeared to have been deceased for less than 12 hours. On searching the body, the police found no wallet, no cash, and no ID. Even the labels on the man's clothes, which during the 1940s often included a handwritten name, had been removed. All the deceased man had were a box of matches, chewing gum, cigarettes, two combs, and an unused train ticket for an outbound journey. With so little to go on, the authorities searched all the missing person, immigrant, and ship deserter reports. But none of these offered insight into the anonymous Somerton man. Making the case more puzzling, the subject didn't appear to be a victim of violence, and his death didn't seem to have been caused by lifestyle factors. Apparently, he was remarkably fit and muscular. However, it was impossible for them to know until an autopsy was performed. During the procedure, pathologist John Dwyer discovered a disconcerting amount of blood in the victim's stomach. This suggested that the Somerton man had ingested a poison of some kind. But suspiciously, there was no evidence of a toxic substance in his system. Dwyer was completely befuddled by the evidence. Ultimately, he couldn't determine an official cause of death for the deceased. But Adelaide coroner Thomas Cleland was determined to find an answer. After consulting with a local professor of pharmacology, Cleland determined that there were two lethal poisons which could have caused the victim's death, digitalis and strophanthin. Both toxins came from plants. Digitalis is often combined with other chemicals to create a perfectly safe heart treatment. Strophanthin, however, could be lethal, especially in large doses. Digitalis and strophanthin also disappear quickly from a person's body without leaving a trace, making them even more attractive to a would-be poisoner. The dangerous nature of these chemicals meant that only a certified chemist or a pharmacist could gain access to them. This was one of the earliest clues that pointed to the Odd Fellows. The Grand Lodge in Adelaide was associated with a number of local businesses, one of these was the Friendly Society's Medical Association, which ran a chain of chemist shops and drugstores around the Adelaide area. The order's relationship with this company meant that members had easy access to the materials that might have killed the Somerton man. And the evidence against the Oddfellows didn't end there. Four months after the Somerton man was found, a pathologist located a small slip of paper in the man's hidden pants pocket that read, Tamam should. This Persian phrase means, it is finished. 
it appeared as though the page the words were written on had been directly ripped from a Persian book called The Rubaiyat of Omar Hayyam. A book that had a significant connection with the Oddfellows. The Oddfellows have had a few offshoot branches throughout their history. One was their women's order known as the Rebekahs, but there was another derivative group called the Ancient Mystic Order of Samaritans, or Amos. The Amos apparently functioned as a sort of playground for Oddfellow brothers who were in particularly good standing. The offshoot group also had their own set of rituals and initiations, which were believed to have a Middle Eastern theme. For example, Amos initiates were taught the story of Xerxes, a Persian king who learned the lesson of humility through one of his valued servants. It's very possible that the Somerton man had a connection with this offshoot society. Perhaps he was even a member himself, which would explain his interest in Persian folklore. Or perhaps whoever killed the Somerton man left him with the words, Tamam should, as a warning. Maybe the murderer saw a significance in the Persian phrase, because he belonged to Amos. Despite this strong potential connection, authorities never looked into Amos or any of its members during their investigation. Meanwhile, the story of the Somerton man spread. Soon, it seemed every Australian was desperately searching old bookstores and libraries for the exact book the page had been ripped from. Finally, somebody found it. On July 23, 1949, a man entered the Adelaide Police Department with a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Hayyam. It appeared to be the original book, the one which had the phrase Tamam Shud ripped from its pages. And strangely, the man holding it had no idea how the book came into his possession. He stated that back in December, he and his brother-in-law had gone for a drive through Adelaide. They stopped at Somerton Beach, parked their car a few hundred yards from the water, and hopped out for a stroll. The man claimed that his brother-in-law found the book later on, under his back seat. He stuffed it into the glove compartment and didn't give it another thought until news about the Somerton man broke. At that point, the men realized three things. First, the book didn't belong to either of them. Second, it was definitely the missing copy with the right page torn out. Lastly, they had no idea where it came from. The car was often parked near Somerton Beach. The only thing the brothers could guess was that someone from the beach somehow put the book into the car. Unable to offer any other insight on the matter, the brothers handed the book over to authorities. After a thorough analysis, Adelaide Detective Sergeant Lionel Lane found a faint impression of some indecipherable text on the book's back cover. Lane put it under an ultraviolet light. It was only then that he was able to make out five lines of scrambled letters. They appeared to be some sort of unique cipher. Some cryptologists believe that the strange code found in the book resembled a 1920 cipher text called the Action Line Cryptogram. This was a form of acrostic writing that required memorized words and phrases to decrypt. Its meaning, therefore, could only be discovered by those who already had access to secret knowledge. Because of this, the police were at a complete loss as to what the message in the book meant. In a bid to crack it, they recruited the help of naval intelligence officers who were known as the best codebreakers in Australia. They even gave the cryptic message to the press, hoping someone might recognize it. But their efforts were in vain. The Navy failed to break the code, and no one came forward with any concrete answers. 
Thus, the cipher remained inscrutable, and the police were unable to tie it to any suspects. Then, in 2014, investigative writer Nick Pelling discovered that various texts using Action Line cryptogram had been used by Oddfellows since the 19th century. But for whatever reason, the police never pursued this lead. When the Summerton man was buried in the summer of 1949, the order appeared to be involved once again. The coronial inquest, which was supposed to determine if further investigation was needed into the Summerton man, was actually held at an Oddfellows Lodge in Adelaide. It's not entirely clear whether this was the standard location for an inquest, or the society requested that the Summerton man's case be held there. Either way, the inquest being set in a lodge seems to suggest that the order had influence over the justice system in Adelaide, and the content of the event was also suspicious. During the inquest, coroner Thomas Cleland announced that the evidence was inconclusive. He claimed that he couldn't officially state whether the Summerton man had been murdered, committed suicide, or if he died of natural causes. Then Cleland unilaterally stated that there would be no further hearings. The meeting was swiftly adjourned. Seventy years later, no one knows the identity of the Summerton man or what led to his death. Some of the more common theories suggest he'd committed suicide and that Tamam Should was a message to a former lover. Others say he was a spy whose days were numbered. The Oddfellows theory isn't the most popular one out there. Yet, there are still plenty of signs that suggest the Summerton man may have been linked to their society. For all we know, he was murdered by the Oddfellows. Whatever the truth is, it likely will be taken to the Oddfellows' grave. Unfortunately for its members, their demise might occur sooner than they think. Though the society still operates in over 20 countries today, their numbers are dropping at an alarming rate. Dave Rosenberg, a past Grand Master for the Oddfellows' California jurisdiction, has a few theories as to why. According to him, the group's numbers are suffering because they have a hard time adapting. The average age of an Oddfellow today is around 65 years old. This often means that current members are still spreading recruitment information through paper notices and newspapers. According to Rosenberg, they rarely use email or the internet, meaning there's hardly any outreach to the younger generations. They also hold meetings in the afternoons when most younger people are at work. This inability to change with the times and attract young members has been devastating for their ranks. Rosenberg says there used to be 400 lodges in the state of California alone. Today, there's fewer than 100. Even sadder, most of today's lodges have an average of 15 members. In the group's heyday, they house dozens. All of this seems to suggest that the Oddfellows are going extinct. The question remains, once the order is gone, will they be remembered for their charitable nature and their motto of friendship, truth, and love? Or will the Oddfellows be relegated to the annals of history as yet another cloak-and-dagger society? In the meantime, one can only hope their intriguing secrets will continue coming to light. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Secret Societies for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>